This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Welcome to Most Innovative Companies. I'm your host, Yasmin Gagne, joined by my producer, Josh Christensen. Hey, Josh. Hey, Yas. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about CEO pay, but first I want to know, tell me about your worst ever boss or CEO. Okay, well, this is actually really serendipitous because I've been having frequent stress dreams about the worst boss I've ever had. What? Which <laughs> I keep having stress dreams that we hire my first store manager boss for my first job ever, which was a cashier at Walgreens. And I cannot for the life of me remember this guy's name, but he was just like a short, older white guy with a tiger tattoo on his upper arm. He sounds awesome. What was so bad about him? <laughs> I mean, I think I've given enough. <laughs> I think the tiger tattoo is really telling of his management style, but he was just like so mean to all of us 16-year-old kids working our first job ever. I'm just like, why? It's funny. I had a boss. I worked in politics for a while who threw an oh, internet router at me. Yep. Yeah. You told me this story yeah, before. That was rough. It's funny. You know, who's that? What's that quote? It's like all happy families are the same, but all sad families are like sad in different ways or something. I've never heard that quote before. And I think like because I was so young, I was just like, oh, I guess this is what workplaces are like. Like the movies also tell you that this is what workplaces are like, kind of. Yeah, kind of. But it shouldn't be like that. But it is at far too many places. And we're going to get into some specific areas of those inequities in a little bit. But I should tell a very quick last time you'll ever hear this from me, our housekeeping is... Fast Company's Innovation Festival is next week. You're listening to this on a Wednesday, maybe a Thursday or Friday. Maybe you're listening to it as it's happening. But next week in New York City, the 18th through the 21st at Convene and other various locations throughout the city with some really interesting fast tracks, as we call them. We have such great programming at our Innovation Festival. Tickets are still available. Buy your tickets. Come see Yaz and I. We'll be there. We're, Yaz is hosting a couple panels. Many of the guests you've heard on this podcast will be hosting panels and we'll all be uh, you know, wandering around Convene. So come say hi. Yeah, come say hi. Well, anyway... Later on today's episode, we'll hear a conversation one of our producers, Julia Shu, had with Michelle Carre at VidCon earlier this year. They discussed Carre's YouTube channel, Challenge Accepted, where she learns how to do different jobs, including clown school. But first of all, let's talk about some other clowns. Across Hollywood studios and other industries, CEOs are taking home compensation packages that are hundreds or thousands of times greater than their workers' salaries. Fast Company put together a special report on CEO fair pay, and here to break it all down is Fast Company Deputy Digital Editor Morgan Clendaniel. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Yaz. What's up? Just, you know, not making as much money as some CEOs. Yeah, we don't know our CEOs. I assume it's not nearly as high as the Hertz CEO salary, which was the one that really got me in this article. <laughs> why, did that, why did that one get you so It's so Hertz. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the mediocre car rental company? I can't. I thought Hertz went bankrupt. It did. And then he is the new CEO, and that's why he's making so much money, because he's gotten a huge amount of stock front-loaded uh, as part of his new contract. Make it make sense, Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> I saw one analysis that put the medium CEO to worker pay at um, Standard & Poor's 500 ratio at 324 to 1. 
That's kind of a crazy number. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. And that's, you know, the average. So uh, many of the CEOs make uh, way more than that in comparison to their workers. You know, uh, just to take a, a famous example, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, made more than $99 million in 2022. You know, that's both salary uh, and and stock. Uh, but that's 1,117 times the company's median worker pay of 84 thousand dollars a year uh, give or take which you know includes both people uh at apple hq developers and stuff but also people at the uh at the apple stores but so you take that median worker uh they would have to work for more than a thousand years to make tim cook's uh annual salary in 2022 so i want to talk a little bit about because this is something i noticed in the report you said that that number sort of the eighty-four thousand, includes people who work on the shop floor the report seems to also include hourly workers right so one of the biggest discrepancies i saw was the abercrombie and fitch ceo but presumably that's also taking into account like the employees who are picking up occasional shifts we worked with a company called MyLogic uh, to sort of pull these numbers, uh, and they are pulled from companies' SEC filings, which are, are something companies have now been obliged to do since 2017, uh, which is to post uh, numbers about their CEO's pay and their median worker pay. Uh, but the rules are a little loosey-goosey in terms of how you define your median worker pay and which workers you include. Right. So. There's definitely some discrepancies between companies that, say, include all their overseas workers and all their factories versus the people who will sort of tilt it more towards their corporate HQ. So that will definitely tip the numbers one way or another. But this does give you a sort of general sense of, of the sort of workforces that the companies have. Uh, and so you'll see some some very tiny numbers for companies' median employee pay. And that is partially because they have a lot of workers who they pay really badly. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, now, I also want to talk a little bit about the role of stock grants. So Josh alluded to the fact that like the Hertz CEO had a lot of stock that was front loaded. But there's a fair amount of CEOs that sort of make a lump sum that may seem kind of low, but actually get a lot of compensation via stocks in the company. Tell me a little bit about what role that plays in this whole thing. So there's I think there's two ways to look at that, right? One is there are some CEOs who just have a small annual cash salary but are, are receiving a lot of stock. And one thing you'll see is, uh, like we were talking about with Hertz, there's a sense that the CEO should have a fair amount of stock in the company, right? And so when a CEO first starts, they are given a lot of stock up front as part of their initial pay package, and that can dissipate over time. So one thing that's really important to think about when looking at this list is it is really snapshot in time and things can change very quickly year to year. Another thing to think about is some of the lowest paid CEOs might be founders who are sitting on 50% of the stock in the company anyway. So, you know, someone who is listed as making 200,000 a year in a lot of senses that's probably good for company morale and they could be making way more, but uh, you know, they might be a billionaire who just happens to be making $200,000 a year in cash salary. And uh, it sort of has minimal effect on their day-to-day -day net worth. I am curious, you know, some of the numbers you've thrown out are just kind of too big to wrap their heads around. It's like, you know, if you imagine somebody giving you a billion dollars, like when I think about trying to spend that beyond donating to charity, it's really hard. But some kind of argue that CEOs should be paid that much because they're taking on more risks than the average worker and shouldering more stress or public expectation or what have you. What would you say to that? Certainly, a person who founds the company, you can understand the argument that they should be uh, extracting a fair amount of value from it, though. I guess then you'd also have to ask, like, 
at the point that they've gone public, how much of that value has been contributed uh, by the workers and not them. Yeah. But then I think, you know, you have these uh, sort of just corporate men and, and women who uh, are, are hired into a job, not to keep knocking on the on the Hertz guy, but you know, he was the <laughs> exec at Goldman Sachs. And then, you know, he's good at business. So now he's the CEO of Hertz. Maybe he's judged more on the annual performance of Hertz year to year. But I think obviously, you know, there are workers who are handling a lot of risk, whether that be dying on the job uh, or whatever else. And there are certainly a lot of jobs that take on a lot of risk that are poorly remunerated, certainly like a lot of government jobs uh, and whatever else. I think you're sort of viewing this through your own prism uh, in terms of how how much you think a CEO is adding value to the company. Right. But uh, some of these ratios, I think you would be hard pressed to fit into your worldview, uh, no matter how CEO friendly it is. The owner of Ticketmaster, which has obviously been in the news for basically like price gouging tickets and the amount of there makes an absurd amount in a ratio. But it's like, even if you can justify they add that value, which I think is is tough to say. I mean, there's just like the kind of broader like moral scope of it, like Yaz alluded to, is that there's no possible way. Like, how much money do you need? That's where it comes down to. And I guess that's a different conversation than what you earn and what you're, you know, we're a business magazine. We're not really necessarily equipped to uh, handle the philosophical questions about what we owe to each other. But like, it's just, it's hard to wrap your mind around it from a logical or a moral standpoint. But Morgan, CEO pay wasn't always this crazy, right? Uh, yeah, it, this is we are at a, a, a sort of high point in 1965. I think it was somewhere around uh, 20 to one. And then uh, by the late 80s, it was up to 58 to one. So that's like, you know, more than a factor of five in under 35 years. Uh, Reagan, I don't know, Yeah, I don't know that like CEOs got more valuable right in that time. How did that happen, though? I mean, how did those numbers come about? (laughs) Trickle down economics? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Like I I said, Reagan. um, (laughs) All Reagan. Sorry, I cut you off, but you were talking, you were sort of leading us into talking a little bit about kind of income inequality more broadly. I think it's part and parcel to a world where income inequality has increased broadly. The total wealth held by the top 10% of, of U.S. families grew from 24 trillion to 82 trillion uh, in roughly that same amount of time. So it's just a, a concentration of wealth um, and a concentration, I think, of stock and, and equities. And, and as those things have gone up hugely uh, over the last few decades, uh, the people at the top are reaping the rewards. That is obviously an incredibly depressing stat. But but what is the broader impact of these numbers coming out? Like, how does that affect employee morale? I think it infects employee morale pretty badly. I think especially, you know, as you, as employees are sort of being asked to do more, having more rules, more monitoring from corporate, the idea that like all these things continue to come with only sort of marginal increases in pay, if anything, uh, while the CEO continues to rake it in uh, and often continues to rake it in in spite of any changes in company performance, that can't be good. And I think we've seen sort of boost in in union organizing over the last few years. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think in some of the more visible and public campaigns, uh, CEO pay has become a big issue. You've seen it a lot in the Starbucks workers spent a long time calling out former CEO Kevin Johnson's pay package and his huge golden parachute, which I think was like $60 million. This summer, there's been a, a lot of discussion of Bob Iger's pay as part of the Hollywood strikes. 
There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing. Fran Drescher, who's the president of the Screen Actors Guild, which is one of the Hollywood unions that has been on strike this summer, has been really going after Disney CEO Bob Iger for his pay and these comments he made where he said that what the writers and actors were uh, asking for was, quote unquote, excessive, where, you know, I think Drescher and and everyone else uh, has pointed out that his pay is the actual thing that's pretty excessive. It's definitely a thing that is driving workers to be upset at their management and then instigating factor and taking more action. There's also, you know, an element of like, CEOs are often granted stocks with the idea that it sort of makes their incentives the same. So you run a company well, stock performs well, you get compensated more. But outsized CEO compensation can also lead to kind of misaligned incentives, right? Sure. I mean, to take examples from the last couple of decades, you know, we've had pharma companies pushing opioids to boost their stock price. Uh, obviously, you know, we have fossil fuel companies trying to pump more oil to boost their stock price. We have companies skimping on safety protections for their workers. And all these things can do a temporary juice to your stock price that would help you as the CEO, but uh, perhaps are not aligned with broader societal interests. So there's definitely some negatives to the idea that CEOs should be fully invested in just their uh, short-term stock performance. So these numbers have all been public since 2017, as you mentioned. Um, Who do we have to thank for the increased scrutiny on CEO pay? This came from an SEC rule that was passed in 2015 and then went into effect in 2017. I think certainly, you know, from a policy perspective, uh, this is the kind of stuff that that Bernie Sanders and, and Liz Warren have been making an issue since their time in the spotlight. More broadly, as we said, unions, protest movements, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff you can sort of hear faint echoes of uh, the Occupy Wall Street protests in. I think now now the question is, we've had this information for a while, it comes out every year. And and as we are doing right now, uh, people are sort of shocked by it. And then what are people going to do about it? The organizing campaigns are certainly something, but... So that was going to be my follow-up. Like, are we going (laughs) to see anything? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think... There's some movement. Uh, I know Senator Sanders has a bill about adding tax increases to uh, companies with a high CEO pay ratio. Uh, a few cities have uh, passed like additional taxes on companies with bad ratios. San Francisco uh, and Portland, Oregon, perhaps not surprisingly. Then there's the question of sort of, can it come from shareholders? There are now uh, a lot of votes that are called say on pay votes, uh, where Shareholders can voice displeasure, I guess, at uh, CEO pay packages. They're non-binding, so the board can decide to pay the CEO whatever they want anyways. But you Mm -hmm. are seeing more and more, uh, say, on pay packages voted for, uh, which is to say that that the shareholders think the CEO is making too much money. Can you give us any examples of companies where shareholders have, you know, expressed their displeasure at CEO pay? Sure. You know, I think in 2001, Starbucks... Shareholders voted a, down a, a CEO pay package, uh, which then the CEO ended up getting anyways, like we said. Was that but, Howard Schultz? Was that Howard Schultz era? No, I think it was Kevin Johnson. Um, it was like Kevin Johnson's last one. We've seen uh, in the past couple months, uh, the, the CEOs of Gap and Walgreens have both uh, been let go. I think they both got pretty nice golden parachutes. So this it's a little hard to say that it was about their pay, but they, uh, you know, they were both 
quite highly paid CEOs and, and perhaps boards are, are starting to look at this a little more closely. I, for one, hope so. We're going to take a quick break followed by Julia Shu's interview with Michelle Carre about finding the novelty in your desk job. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So before starting the channel, how much experience did you have in different work environments? Well, you know, what's interesting is my YouTube channel is me trying a bunch of different jobs. So that's one thing. But before I had my YouTube channel, I worked for another YouTube channel, BuzzFeed, and I was a video producer there. And before that, I had a couple really cool internships. I interned at Google. I interned at DreamWorks Animation, and I also interned for Steve Carell. So I kind of had a bunch of different, both creative background job experience, as well as corporate experience. And um, each of those had such unique value sets that I like to bring to the way that I run my own business today. What would you say about like somebody who has just like the same career and... I think a lot about my parents who stayed in like the same job for their whole lives and just like talking to them about my career and that it's already so different because they're not used to so many changes and mm -hmm. you're like <laughs> trying something new every time. Do you think it's kind of outdated to have the same thing the whole time or how would you bring novelty to something that is the same job you've had for a long time? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about the times I was working for another company at my desk every day. It was always about finding novel experiences, even in the everyday. Something that my husband Garrett talks about all the time and has kind of become a mantra for our, my channel at least, is that the people who experience the most novel experiences feel like their lives are longer because you have these tentpole memories to reflect on. And so something we try to do at the channel is create novel experiences all the time. But even when I think back to working at another company, the memories that are most powerful to me were those novel experiences and the moments when I took ownership and created opportunity for myself or even decided, you know what, I'm going to helm this project even though I haven't been asked to, stepping outside of my comfort zone really made those positions really exciting. And how much do you think of that, like, novelty is also, like, physical change? Because I know there's, like, so many videos where it's, like, really stressful physical things. So many people just have, like, you know, a desk job or an office job. Having physical change is necessary to, like, feel like something's changing? or I think so, because I think that's why in the pandemic... So many people found joy again by being able to work from home. And I think it's important for companies to listen to their workforce and employees and as to what like your own passions are and how you can inject them into the workplace. And it can be as simple as instead of working at my desk today, I'm going to go work in the office kitchen or something or work outside. But... I feel that a lot of companies neglect those opportunities for the people who work for them. And at that point, you're faced with an opportunity to either try a different job altogether, which is a privilege that not everyone has, or to create an opportunity for a new change of space or pace or project style within your own company that you're working for. Of all these different videos you've made, have there been places where you feel like 
your values run counter to like the place that you're at or the new coworkers that you have? Whenever I take on a new challenge and challenge accepted, I'm going into a new community and they're allowing me in and going to Butler Academy, for example, was a really good example of, I don't know if I would do it this way myself. This International Butler Academy is very strictly run. There are a lot of rules. The fork has to be exactly three centimeters from the knife. I don't know. I'm that. Don't quote me on it. That's probably wrong. But the point is there are high stakes for things that I didn't feel necessarily I would put as much high stakes for, but I can also appreciate their perspective. And so being with these new coworkers really actually opened my eyes a lot. Some of the butlers I met were 19 years old, and this was their first higher education learning opportunity. One butler I met was a software engineer who quit his job as a software engineer to go to this butler academy because he wanted to learn how to serve others better. And in doing so, he felt he would become a better leader. And those are all perspectives I wouldn't have had had I not gone through the difficulty of the program itself. And so I think that challenge and failure and obstacle allow so many opportunities for personal growth. And I think that's why I am kind of addicted to doing it over and over and over again, because I learned so much about myself. And I also realize a lot of preconceived notions I may have had about one thing are oftentimes wrong. And, and I think that's important for everyone to challenge your own beliefs. What's something where there was something that you changed your mind on? Clowning. I went to clowning school. I was like, this will be fine. I went to Marine Boot Camp. How much harder can it be? Clowning is really hard, y'all. Clowning is really hard. And so I, I kind of have just learned to appreciate that the highest level of any art form or job or lifestyle, when you're working with passionate people, it is a passion. Um, it's to be respected and cared for. And I have so much respect for anybody who has a dream and goes after it to pursue it fully, whether it is becoming a clown, uh, joining a circus, or becoming a ballerina, whatever it may be. The people at the top are always putting in so much love and care into what they do. Do you feel like somebody has to love, love their job? I would encourage everyone to find a large percentage of your day doing something that brings you joy. For some people, that's I'm going to work my desk job, and then when I go home, that's where I find my joy. As long as that is occupying a large portion of your day, and it really truly is the place where you find joy, then by all means, yeah, work, work the job, go home, do the thing. For me, I needed to find passion in what I was doing, and I thought originally I would find that at a company where I would rise the ranks and over time get to do exactly what I wanted to do. And the hard truth for me was realizing that at the company I was at, I was reaching a ceiling and I had to uh, go towards the difficult thing, which was to go off and do my own thing and become a leader and learn all the skills of management and, and business development that I was a little scared to do on my own. Um, but it has brought me so much joy in every day of what I do, even even when it's difficult, not just filming on camera and the challenges are hard or whatever, but I'm so grateful for the values that our company, our production company has and the people that we have found to bring it to life. And so I think if you're sitting at your desk at whatever job you're at and you're not 
feeling it and you do want a job that brings you that joy, it's it's a difficult thing to look inward and ask yourself, can I do it myself and what would it take? How do you think that being able to kind of like build your own production team and pick the people that you work with, what's been like the best and worst parts of that experience? Being a full-time YouTube creator is such a privilege. It really is. And I think me from a few years ago would not have believed the team we have built at this point. I think that the pros are obvious when you have success. Obviously, it's amazing to have a show with recognition. It's amazing to work with people I love every day. And it's amazing to be the person who says, yes, we're going to do this or no, we're not. And get to have that creative agency over things. I think the cons are a lot of what it took to achieve that. The cons are having a moment where you realize, I think I'm going to quit my stable job to do this crazy thing. The moment of I've quit my job. I really freaking hope this works. And then as as you're growing and putting your head down, uh, working with others, learning how to be a manager, learning how to be a leader, learning how to have really tough conversations with your peers, your employees, and also remaining firm in what I didn't like about my prior jobs I held and in making sure we're not going to do that this time in my world. When I left my day job before starting my channel, I actually made a list of these are all the things I didn't like at everywhere else I've worked, from big corporations to small startups, whatever it may be. And I have really tried, I think our whole team has really tried to uphold those values, sometimes to our detriment, um, because growing at scale is a temptation at times, but it's also, you lose a lot of the love and the joy and the, the real humanness to things. So that's the choice we've made, but I'm really happy with it. Yeah, what's an example of one of those things where you're like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do like that <laughs> traditional thing that like now, now you have the opportunity to do differently. Something I think that my husband, Garrett, is exceptional at um, and we work together and run the company together. Uh, he's extremely good at speaking with everyone one-on-one and finding out their own needs. And at the, all the other jobs that I've worked at, if someone asks, oh, can I have this specific piece of equipment or can I have this? It's always a huge bureaucratic process to get what you need, right? And I feel like because our team, we've chosen to keep it smaller, it allows a lot more opportunity for us to maintain happiness. I feel like that is such a forefront issue for us. Not an issue. It's a big value for us, for everything that we do is, are we having fun with everything we're doing? Are, is there a balance? And Garrett is exceptional at crafting work-life balance and even boundaries with all that. So... And I think that the best leaders are people who have done the job themselves and understand the pain points within. I think we have all had a manager who has only managed and never done the thing. And that is really difficult to work with at times. And fortunately for me and Garrett, we've done everything from editing for other YouTubers when we didn't have any money to uh, holding a boom pole to do sound to, you know 
crafting emails. We've done it all. And um, I think at this point, it, it helps us lead in a way with an intimacy understanding of what it takes to do it. What's like a universal challenge that you've seen? The most difficult challenge I find in any position is the transition from the person doing the job to being a manager. Management in general is its own skill set. And not everybody wants to do it. And I find a lot of companies do not offer upward trajectory unless you want to manage other people. When in actuality, they're two completely different skill sets. So I think that that is just like a general issue everywhere at every company. And I mean, even at some of the jobs I worked, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to be a manager yet, but that was the only way to go up. And so you have people who find themselves in management and really want to actually be doing the craft instead, but just at a higher level. Or you have people in management who are career managers and have never done the craft and they can't relate to the people that they're uh, overseeing. And so it just feels like someone's arbitrarily setting deadlines and they don't actually know what it means to do the job. I don't know the solution to that, but I think that it is a problem that everyone in like corporate America needs to fix <laughs> together. Like collectively, everybody needs to get together and fix it. And I feel like it's an unspoken problem that everyone just kind of like is like, oh, this is just like a hard thing you have to deal with. Why? Obviously there's management training, but to me, that's kind of like the linchpin, the big obstacle to upward growth for every company. Yeah. What does, um, what does like a clown manager do? A clown manager. Well, you know, the, the clown school. <laughs> 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 they, uh, they're actually, <laughs> I guess they have a different corporate structure from the military. Yeah, that makes sense. It was like, well, someone <laughs> must be like, I don't know, soliciting jobs for them and sending them out to like different places. Yes. I don't, and they yeah. don't get to do as much clowning then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but the organizations where I've seen it most effective, like, you know, let's say, let's take the military, for example. It's a very regimented, structured way of moving up, moving down, moving laterally there, uh, which has its benefits and, and its detriments for everybody involved. But I think there's always a lot to be learned from an organization that's effective in what they do, especially like, again, let's take the butlers. Could I be a butler? No. But do they do that job so effectively with the training they have? Yeah. And if you love it, by all means, become a butler. <laughs> Is there one that you've tried where you could see yourself doing it long term? You know, the, the profession, I, I don't even know if I could say this is a profession for me, but um, one of the challenges I really fell in love with was boxing. So I just did a video where I trained like an Olympic boxer for quite a while. And at the end, I participated in a fight in front of 15,000 live people in an audience and a lot of people watching online. And um, to me, this was a difficult thing to step away from when it was all over because I loved the training and so much. It was my ideal work environment. Maybe not the fight. That's not an ideal work environment. But the training, I was surrounded by people who I loved learning from. They pushed me in a way that only they could. They believed in me. And those are all things you want in a manager, right? Um, totally, and the yeah. balance it gave me between, you know, I'm at my gym training. 
I'm bettering myself. I felt like I was bettering myself. And then I was also having that balance of going home and working on the computer. Like it was an ideal work day for me. It was a perfect day. But the reality is that lifestyle and being a boxer is not sustainable for me who is not a professional at it. It's extremely dangerous. I mean, I broke my nose in the fight, but I won. Um, (laughs) So it was a difficult thing for me to step away from, but it it was a beautiful thing because I felt like, as I mentioned, I, I found my, I found managers who believed in me. I found a work day that was ideal for the things that I loved. And I felt like I was really operating at my prime during that. And so it was a really beautiful, happy accident to find that. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, a unique way to like find something that fits in all of those ways. And yeah, I wish everybody could find like such a supportive environment. Absolutely. I mean, I think it made me realize too that finding a community of people who bring you to your best is most important at all times, whether it's with your job or the people you hang out with after work. All right, we're back with Morgan, and it's time to wrap up the show with Keeping Tabs. This is where each one of us shares a story, trend, or company we are following right now. And Morgan, since you are our guest, what are you keeping tabs on? So mostly for the last month, I've been keeping tabs on CEO pay. Uh, And in between (laughs) that, uh, I have a 18-month-old. So the only other thing I am keeping tabs on is potty training. I'm so glad you didn't make a joke. Like, my wife is the CEO of our home or something. You know, like, I, I can't, can't stand humor like Well, that. look, I am the CEO of potty training. And <laughs> I'm taking a no-nonsense approach. Just kidding. Uh, she peed on the floor Not taking yesterday. any shit. <laughs> she, yeah, she peed on the floor yesterday. She peed on the floor. Oh, no. Oh, no. I think that happens a lot. So I've been reading a lot about different uh, potty training techniques. And, you know, as with all things parenting, I've learned uh, as being a parent, you you read five things and they all have five different opinions and it turns out you should just do it whatever way is easiest for you. So what's been your method of choice and what's been the least effective method? Uh, my method of choice is just she says she wants to sit on the potty and then uh, I take off all her clothes and she sits on the potty and then doesn't do anything and then stands up and pees on the floor. And, you know, we're just going to keep <laughs> <Hell> doing <yeah. laughs> that uh, awesome. until... Stick it to the and, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're... We're going to keep doing that until uh, we try something else. So your daughters <laughs> revolt against CEO pay since yeah, you're exactly. a self-proclaimed CEO of potty training. Um, and what's been the, the least effective method? Probably the one you're doing, potentially. Yeah, but... I mean, you know, uh, we're just doing one right now. There's like one where they basically are like, clear your schedule for three days. And, <laughs> and they don't wear diapers. And you're just uh, like... <laughs> Fuck no. You at the beginning, you're going to have some accidents, and by the end of the weekend, you're done. Seems like a thing that I sounds crazy to me now. And in three months, when I get frustrated, we're going to do it, and it will work. And then I'll tell everyone that they just have to do it. Is, this is the Ozempic <laughs> of potty training. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Josh, what are you keeping tabs on? Uh, slightly different than that. I have two very quick keeping tabs. The first one is just kind of a uh, it's. Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I don't know if if you followed, but last night on the third play mm-hmm. as a New York Jet, after the most excruciating multi-year saga that was the Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay, will they, won't they, tears his Achilles tendon and is probably, 
is at least done for the year, but that's a brutal injury and he's 40. This is probably the end of Aaron Rodgers' career. As a certified cool girl, I can say that I saw him talking about this on the Manning cast last night with John McEnroe. There you go. Yeah, McEnroe was there. <laughs> he was there to experience that. A bar in Wisconsin was doing like a, a special, like an anti-Aaron Rodgers special where they said drinks would be on the house if the Jets lost. Uh, and so immediately after the injury on the third play, people, well, so people started buying huge amounts of drinks because they thought they would be free, but then the Jets actually won in overtime. Yeah. And so everyone had to pay. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's awesome. It's wild. And then I have one last very quick one. Have either of you seen the music video to Back on 74 by Jungle? It's gone pretty viral. No, but viral. I do like Jungle. And Jungle's I great. Watch that video. It's a really cool video. It's gone viral, particularly one bit of the choreography, which the choreography is amazing. But what I'm really interested about it is that they partnered with WeTransfer, which is a file transferring service that audio professionals use and video professionals use a lot, where they host the video on their platform and you can watch it and you can, uh, and now it's like a really like lavish vintage um, setting in an old theater. There's allusions to ballroom culture. And throughout the music video, there's framed pieces of artwork that you can click on and download that piece of artwork. Pretty cool interactive music video, and I'm I'm pretty into it. It's pretty cool. You should check it out. Oh, the choreography I like that. That's like, maybe we can put it in the show notes. Yes. What's your keeping tabs? I actually have two for you. Um, the first is simply a Daily Mail headline that I'm going to read verbatim. You are obsessed with the Daily Mail, by yes. the way. <laughs> I read the Daily Mail every single day, and I get a fair amount of story ideas from it. But horror author Stephen King claims his wife threatened to, all caps here, divorce him because he played Lubega's Mumbo Number no. 5 <laughs> on repeat. I saw this. It happened. I can't. On repeat. Stephen King, I didn't, think, I didn't think I could love you more, but I... Stephen King, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. incredible. I mean, that's a commitment to horror in your everyday life that I just <laughs> I can't match. No notes. <laughs> no notes, um, King. And my second is that Olivia's Rodrigo's new album is good. It's so good. It's I really, love it's really good. Rodrigo. My favorite lyric is probably, I want to meet your mom to tell her her son sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's but great. But there's a lot of good material there. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Morgan. Tell us where we can find more CEO pay coverage. Sure. So I assume uh, the links will be in the show notes, but you can also go to fastcompany.com. We're going to be rolling out uh, even more CEO pay coverage over the next few weeks. But you can find a, a list of every company on the Russell 3000, which is almost every publicly traded company in America, which you can search through and, and see every CEO and their, and their salary. Most of the facts that we were talking about in this podcast are in a great article by Kristen Toussaint, uh, sort of unpacks everything you want to know about CEO pay and whether it's fair or not. Uh, and then we have several other articles about how CEO pay affects morale, looking at the fairest and least fairest paid CEOs, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So please check it out. Cool. Thanks. And that's it for Most Innovative Companies. Our show is produced by Avery Miles and Blake Odom, mixed and sound designed by Nicholas Torres, and our executive producer is Josh Christensen. 